Welcome to LifeSight AI, the podcast series brought to you by Cypro and hosted by me, Nick Mahoney. This series looks to shine a light on the key developments of AI within the life science industry. Following on from the successful roundtable Cypro hosted in 2020, we aim to bring cross collaboration between common projects and to help promote the use of AI in life sciences. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Here we go again for episode two of LifeSci AI, the podcast series brought to you by Cypro. If you missed episode one with Olivier Jolie from Brainomics, then please go back and listen to that on your preferred podcast streaming service. But for now, we continue looking at the development of AI within life sciences. And I'm very pleased to be joined by uh, Mark Goldfinger a product specialist at Perspectum Diagnostics. So if you may, Mark, um, please give everyone a short introduction and a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to join you on this podcast. Uh, just as a uh, just as a, a point of order, it's now Perspectum. It's no longer Perspectum Diagnostics. We okay. legally <laughs> had the name change. So. <laughs> but uh, no, so um, I, uh, like Nick said, I'm a, a product specialist. So I started in uh, perspective as a biomedical scientist and I found that the science was fascinating but it wasn't integrating to the product as well as I thought it could be. And when we're integrating artificial intelligence and clinical information, I think having a, a good scientific background is essential. And so I transitioned more towards a product development background and my role is basically taking new concepts and bringing them from concept to reality and babying, you know, babysitting them along the way to make sure that they fit a specific brief, they pass FDA muster, they meet the user requirements and um, that they then get sold. And, and that's what I do at Perspective. Awesome. So, I mean, we'll, we'll go into sort of the, the products and, and such at Perspective in a, in a little while, but... In the last episode, Olivier um, began with where he started as a as a scientist and researcher. And actually, you have very similar foundations and interests um, because he was looking at neuroscience and the senses, and you started out looking at neuroscience as well. Um, and we perhaps didn't go into as much detail as I would like with Olivier uh, in that. But for you, why was that such a keen interest at the start? Yeah, so that's a good question. So just just as you know, for those who don't know me, um, my, my background in, in neuroscience and neuropathology in particular uh, has been there since my undergraduate. So I've always thought that the brain is it's kind of like the final frontier of unknown knowledge. You know, there's so much unknown that even doing something basic is, is you know, staking your claim to science and really pushing the boundaries of knowledge. Um, you know, I, I worked on a variety of neurodegenerative disorders and I worked with uh, Alzheimer's and, and trauma-induced disorders. My doctorate was in a, dis, a disorder called chronic traumatic encephalopathy or trauma-induced dementia. You know, I worked on uh, rare neurodegenerative diseases called Batten disease. So I've done the gamut. Um, and I think where this really comes from is, is again, that sense of 
we know so little about all of it. You know, my, my doctorate was exploring vascular disruption within trauma within a specific disease and it's never been looked at before. And something so basic has never been analyzed into the way that I wanted to do it. But I think what we know about the brain it being so limited, it, it's also growing so quickly. And I think from when I did my undergraduate to when I did my PhD, the information changed completely. What we knew as basis of, of this is the brain and this is how it works, we see it's all the same, but we knew so much more about the brain and we knew so much more about its properties and its emergent properties that it just seemed like it's one of the most fascinating parts of science and uh, medicine that you can be a part of right now. And I mean, I could talk for hours, don't, don't even get me started. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the one thing that I, I found was really going back to it was, was I, I was introduced to a lot of the patients who suffered from these, these debilitating disorders. So yeah. when I worked in trauma, uh, I met people who had suffered severe accidents or people who had um, suffered repeated head injuries due to science, uh, due to sports injuries. And, and it kind of puts your work into context. And right. when the brain is affected, uh, I think it utterly changes the human being. And mm. the notion of the individual who was there pre-injury and post-injury is completely different. You don't really get that with that many types of, um, you know, organ-specific injuries. You know, if you have liver injury, you're not going to change as a human being. But, you know, if you have, you know, like a continuous football injury and your frontal cortex is all filled with proteins called tau, then there's this weird shift, this, this strange shift towards becoming almost a different human being. And you almost become motivated by that person to understand why it's happening and how to help them in the end. So was it driven by your experience of learning the difference between the person before the injury and after injury? Is that a key driver for you or were you always very purpose-led? Um, I think it was more purpose. I think I think it was more purpose-led. And, and it is almost that horrid cliche if you just want to help people. You know, um, <laughs> and I know most people roll their eyes when they hear that. And, and I probably do as well. But I, I think there's something inherently um, motivating about this this kind of purpose that drives you. Uh, you know, and, and each each of us, you know, finds their own purpose. And there's never one is more valid than the other. But for me, it's almost seeing that application of your knowledge and of your science towards almost integrating into healthcare, or integrating into drug, or integrating into patient yeah. care, and ameliorating that disease or that disorder can can really it, it it's so it's so satisfying and it's yeah. so wonderful and it's probably incredibly selfish but you know <laughs> to have that that bridge but it's great to have that approach yeah. to help someone and it, and it's yeah selfish. but but no it's, it's always been more purpose-led and you know and, and the science has always been the driver because it's you know the fascinating part as well mm. so going into neuroscience were you was your phd within was it related to ai were you using ai approaches or was it post your phd that you really took up ai so uh, my phd was in the field of pathology which is about as as kind of archaic as you get uh, pathology is incredibly important and it's an art into itself and again you know talk about for hours but there's very little ai except what we're doing now which i'll talk about yeah in a bit, how you're <laughs> yeah. advancing it 
but really I was, I was introduced to AI on large scales. I mean, obviously I worked with it in uni and in my masters, we were looking at protein folding. Um, but one of the aspects was when I was working in the cabinet office, it was integrating artificial intelligence and, and new ways of using AI to support government, um, uh, just to support the government in, uh, industry and trying to understand how we can streamline and facilitate these processes. And I think going back to things like my master's and my undergraduate, where yeah. we were using AI to you know, predict protein folding or to identify uh, patient demographics based on you know, large scale epidemiological studies in, in China, you know, you kind of get smatterings that you can pull together that creates, you know, almost little breadcrumbs of information that really builds up to something that you can take from, uh, you know, healthcare, epidemiology, you know, proteins, and then it builds into, you know, creating artificial intelligence algorithms for, for biopsies. And that's kind of where it started to build. But yeah. I think my proper introduction to AI as a, you know, you are now working with artificial intelligence, not just in this kind of, yes, yes, let's integrate it. You know, you are building artificial intelligence and you are creating artificial intelligence was properly introduced in perspective. I see. And for you working within like integration and, and trying to put it into different areas of government policy, um, you probably had a, was it like almost an outsider's perspective of AI almost? And if it was so, did it live up to everything you thought it was or was it quite different when you became almost embedded and on the tools at Perspective? You know, it's, it's so funny. I think people have these buzzwords that mean so much and literally nothing. <laughs> so we have this, you know, and, and the biggest joke for me in terms of like a really important concept that is a buzzword beyond buzzwords is blockchain, right? So you, you take up the term blockchain, and oh my God, blockchain, I love blockchain. What is it? You know, and <laughs> so in, in, the, in the government, we, we were working with, you know, the department's, um, uh, the, the Ministry of Defense and then the Met Police and the Department of Health and Social Care. And we were trying to kind of integrate these, these artificial intelligence structures, all these, you know, uh, ledger technologies as a way to you know, improve technology within these systems. And you would be speaking to people who, who would say, oh, yes, we need blockchain, but someone, can you explain to me what it is first? And then I'll, you know, I'll tell you if we need it or not. And it's, it's almost AI has this kind of panacea type of, yeah. it, it solves everything. And we know now, and, and as I've worked with over the past few years, we know that that's not the case. And yeah. it's an incredibly powerful tool. And I think it's now trying to figure out where to use it best and most effectively. And I think working within perspective, what's quite exciting is, you know, we, we've spent multiple years honing our skills within this whole kind of AI field to say, does it work here? Does it work here? Does it work here? How can we improve this? No, you need a human. No, you need a specialist. No, you need an expert to supplant this. No, this can only be a diagnostic support tool. Yeah. And as we move on, obviously it'll become more advanced and, and better as a tool itself. But I think we need to move away, and I can talk about this later, but we need to move away from AI being this cure-all. And yeah. mostly as a way to really understand its, its use within healthcare beyond yeah. just the panacea that, that we think it is. Absolutely, I think you're right if you were to use AI in absolutely everything and try and do that, it devalues it. Um, because it, people think, oh, this is, this is over expensive, over complicated, and we don't need it. And therefore it's a whole fad and a phase where actually it's, it's not, it's just being misused. 
Um, yeah, I agree. So going into Perspectum, um, you have three major products, right? That is correct. Yes. So I, so we, we actually have um, five products, but I'm, I'm working on three of the kind of newer products. Um, yeah. My role is within kind of newer indications. So we, we were working on something I can't really talk about now, but the uh, ones that we've brought to market, I'm more than happy to discuss. Yeah. yeah. And um, I, I think my, my love that I, I, you know, I will fight to the death for is my digital pathology product, and it, it kind of harkens back to when I was doing my uh, when I was doing my my PhD, and you would be hunched over a microscope for days, weeks, years, you know, trying to mm. identify patterns and create scoring systems and evaluate you know, different um, kind of proteinopathies or changes within these biopsies. And this is brain, it's very different from what we're focusing on now, which is liver and, and GI tract. Yeah. But it, it comes down to the same thing, that we need a human being to identify these patterns. And some of these patterns are just very simple at identifying. So, you know, are these little globules of fat? Yep. How many of them are there? What percentage yeah. of fat is there? You know, do we see inflammatory cells? We do. What's the percentage of inflammatory cell coverage? I can tell you. And so I think what we wanted to do was to take away the monotonous and often time consuming and almost impossible tasks for humans. So how many cells are there? How many inflammatory cells are there? How many fat globules are there? Which a human could do, but it would take them, you know, many hours and it can, yeah. an AI algorithm can do in seconds. Yeah. So we built these tools to look at the four cardinal features of liver injury, which is um, steatosis or fat, inflammation, fibrosis, and a really horrid amorphous concept called cellular hepatocellular ballooning, which if you ask two different pathologists, they'll probably give you two different definitions of what the term is. So <laughs> it's, you know, it's, 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 you know, a bit of a head scratcher, especially when you're trying to create an algorithm that doesn't have a very good definition. But um, so we, we built these four products as a way to kind of bring pathology in the 21st century. And yeah. this is on the, this is kind of on the back of surveying the larger political and regulatory shift. And my time in the government taught me that you know if you're a scientist or you're working in a company the silo of i only need to understand the science or i only need to understand the business case is probably not the best way forward because yeah. there's always going to be external factors affecting the way that uh, good science is done and the way things can be sold or integrated into an ever-emerging or changing dynamical population you know we yeah. know that uh, glass slides, which are what you normally use to look at liver biopsies, you, actually physical glass slides, you put them under a microscope, they're very difficult to work with, cumbersome, you can't ship them as easily. And so we were working with digitizing these slides or scanning them, which is a big thing for the FDA and, and the kind of European medical authorities. And so this is the big push now to go from glass slides to digitizing them. So we thought, okay, if we're going to digitize, what else can we do? What, yeah. what ways can we create different biomarkers or, or ways of assessing disease using biological tools 
to uh, you know assess severity or, or diagnose things. And so this is kind of what I've been working on. And we brought it from concept and we you know, worked with KOLs or key opinion leaders and, and uh, different types of pathologists and different centers. And we built our algorithms and we created libraries and we we're doing clinical trials. And we've actually just made our first few sales, properly sales, which has been quite exciting. Um, through use of our digital pathology platform and it's uh yeah it's, it's been it's been a great time awesome thank you for, for taking us through that so if i understand understood that correctly you've almost gone from i don't want to try and simplify it too much but you've gone from what would have been typewriter to computer but in a digital pathology idea Exactly. Exactly. I, mean, I don't want to say I'm a genius. But, you know, but, no, I mean, and it's 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 tough because you know a lot of people are are they're quite scared to use new technology, and yeah. I think right now we're at the cusp, and there's a few other companies that are doing something similar, and I think what makes us unique is that we have the opportunity to offer a million other things that bolster, and we can build beyond just yeah. biopsy but i think we're, we're at the point right now where the transition from typewriter to computer is happening so quickly and people yeah. are still clutching to their typewriter because that's what they know and that's what they're comfortable with and the regulatory authorities haven't caught up and this is yeah. true across all artificial intelligence and yeah, yeah. technology that the the speed at which things change is never going to match up to the speed at which we see Absolutely. regulatory authorities approve or, or even understand these types of changes. Yeah. The amount of conversations that I have with industry leaders around regulation and, and, and standards and potentially implementing one and coming up with one is, is so regular and happens more and more times now um, as, as conversations, I think, are going in that direction. But when that happens, there will be a big shift um, in the market because, you know, some companies might be outside of the standard, might be outside of the regulation. And yeah. that almost is a, is a massive economic impact for them at that time. But for the industry, long term, it will, it will enable for more um, R&D in those areas because it reduces the risk because you know what to aim for, because you know that's going to clear that, that line, right? It's, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and obviously the regulatory authorities are doing their job. Right? You, you don't want to yeah. have things that <laughs> potentially harm or kill someone yeah. on the market. I mean, that's what they're there for. But, but there, there, there is almost a sense of, you know, and, and we, we've worked with, with a lot of people in the FDA and they are uh, amazing scientists. Yeah. And, you know, we, we had a call um, a, few, a few months ago, actually, with some of the, the leaders of the metabolics in, in, in the FDA. It's quite a late call, especially because we're based in the UK and in America. But, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's amazing to talk to them to say, yes, we understand that this is happening, but we need to move at almost a, a, like a glacier-like pace because we don't want to make mistakes. Because if, yeah. if something comes through and it's, it's, you know, it's on their shoulders to approve these things. And I understand that. It can be frustrating, but it's necessary. Mm. But I think as things pick up the pace and we generate evidence at, at sites and speeds that we've never seen before more evidence will be there to support the claims yeah. and we'll see things change a lot faster and having yeah. real world evidence which is what we're focusing on at perspective and kind of these these internal clinical trials to prove that your devices are actually making a difference and having that published and you know peer-reviewed and, and having yeah. champion you it goes through much faster than you would imagine but it's hard it's, it's hard work
yeah, definitely. I think the more collaboration that, that happens as well is it's it's better. But I think there's an idea of um, empathy on both sides of of because everyone's going in the same direction. Yeah. Um, I just with your digital pathology products, now you've almost got the foundation of moving across, as we said, from typewriter to computer. Do you have an idea of of how far it could go? Would, would you be adding on further things, um, different types of disease diagnostics from that, or are you comfortable with, with having the? <laughs> um, we so we've we've started to build. Um, so we we have additional artificial intelligence algorithms or AI algorithms or machine learning algorithms for GI tract as well. So working with inflammatory bowel disease and cancer. Mm. Uh, actually not cancer as of now, but uh, we work with other companies for cancer. But for uh, inflammatory bowel disease, we, we've we developed these these kind of pathological uh, AI tools. And it's, it's exciting because similar principles, different diseases, and you tweak it. And it's always that, that initial kind of sit down that you have where you're at a blank canvas. And you go, okay, what is the pathologist trying to get? What is the clinician trying to get? And what do we know in terms of outcomes and, you know, uh, kind of clinical events and, and, and everything? How can we integrate that? So what we are detailing are clinically relevant data points. So we just don't yeah. want to say, oh, yes, you have X number of things in your liver, because if it doesn't make any sense and it has no clinical application or it means absolutely nothing to the clinicians or pathologists, then it's pointless. So yeah. I think it's, it's so exciting at that start. And without going into too much detail, because I don't think I'm probably allowed to, <laughs> we, are, we are definitely building on top of our liver offering as well as our GI awesome. offering. So it's, 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 it's going, yeah, it's going quite nicely actually. It's really cool. And this is where, you know, wonderful, uh, if people want to join Perspective and they're keen and passionate mm -hmm. about pathology, then, you know, all the more power to them <laughs> yeah for sure for sure and you've not just got got the digital pathology uh products as well so what about the, the visualization um piece that's quite intriguing from from my from my perspective oh right yeah so so we so there's two other tools that i can talk about today um the one you're referring to is called mrcp plus which i'll describe in a second and then we also have our multi-organ phenotyping platform it's a bit of a mouthful um <laughs> which would be, uh, it's called Atlas, which I'll explain yeah. in a minute. Um, so I'll start with MRCP Plus. And MRCP Plus is, again, one, one of my, you know, one of my technology babies that I've been with over the past two years. And what this actually does is use uh, a combination of artificial intelligence and human expertise to turn uh, regular MRCPs, which stands for Magnetic Resonance Cholangiopancreatography, Again, don't, don't, don't expect to remember that with MRCP, <laughs> yeah. but we turn them into 3D quantitative models. And so yeah. we use uh, specific algorithms that identify tubular structures, and we can uh, automatically identify diameters and change all the dynamism between the diameters, and what this means for diseases within the biliary tree, so that's within the liver. And there are specific rare diseases like primary sclerosis and cholangitis or you know, inflammatory bowel disease or, or even pancreatitis where these tubes become distorted. So they are right. shrink down and they have something called strictures where the diameter mm. becomes smaller or they blow up and the diameters become larger and they're called dilatations. So this causes a whole host of different injuries in the liver, you know, cholestasis or uh, chronic liver disease, cancer. 
And so what we built basically is a tool that can automatically quantify these diameters, identify changes between different scans, and look at what we've produced, which are different biomarkers or metrics that understand the change within the biliary tree. And so over the past two years, I've, I've helped develop that with the team here at Perspectum, and we've been creating clinical trials internally, and we've sold this to uh, external clinical trials to show how these metrics, so one of them, I'm just going to tell you a random one, I don't expect it to mean anything to you, but if you take all the, all the different structures and dilatations and you count all of them together, that's a value, and that value turns out to predict if a person is going to need a transplant or not. And right. so what we can then do is create something called biomarkers, like I was explaining before. Mm. So things that can predict the onset of disease or predict the onset of uh, treatment yeah. or necessity of treatment. And we can use that through our clinical, uh, clinical investigations or our clinical studies. And we basically create these biomarkers so that clinicians and radiologists and patients can get a scan it can then be uh, analyzed by perspective. We get these values. These values are given to a uh, clinician. And it says this person is more or less likely to develop you know, a harsher disease, or they're more or less likely to have this rare disease, or they're more or less likely to need transplant, or more yeah. or less likely to you know, suffer or cause mortality. And so it's, it's kind of informing the patients. And yeah. while we are working within a clinical setting, it can also be helpful for things like biopharma. So if, they're, if they want to see how their drugs are, how efficacious their drugs are, they'll need different ways to assess if it's doing anything to the liver or to the biliary tree. So if they give someone a drug, how do they know that those strictures or dilatations are improving? We can tell you. And it's about using that combination of artificial intelligence, which can automatically detect these changes yeah. Plus radiographers and radiologists who can expertly craft and say, ah, that's not this or that's this, yeah. create these products. And then we sell it off to the, uh, yeah, to the, the clinicians and to the uh, biopharma. Awesome. So it's um, very much a partnership then um, between what, the, the AI, the product, and then the clinicians and radiologists to support the patient together. It's like a, a, a family of support rather than just having it just on AI or just on the clinicians, you tee them all together on those products. Yeah, I, I mean, in, in, in normal clinical practice, there's something called an MDT or multidisciplinary team where mm. you have opinions from different specialists that all come in. Yeah. And these opinions form a general medical opinion. And you, know, you have a lead physician who will, you know, you will take the pathologist, the radiologist, yeah. the pathologist, and then go, okay, this is what we see. And I think yeah. using AI and experts to, to kind of craft these, these really, I mean, they're beautiful. If, if you go on perspective.com, you can see some of it. They're really gorgeous. They're different yeah. colors and spin. But <laughs> apart from that, <laughs> um, apart from creating really beautiful imagery, it's the quantitative metrics are actually quite informative yeah. and quite nice. And it's having these quantitative metrics that form, uh, that will form and are beginning to form kind of part of the arsenal of the hepatologist and the rare researcher and the clinician and the, and the patient so that they can be better informed and make better informed opinions. And when we have drugs available for certain rare diseases, for example, like primary sclerosis and cholangitis, which no drugs exist, um, we can use these as measures of drug, drug efficacy. Yeah, yeah. This is actually helping you or not helping you. 
awesome. So it's not just for diagnostics, it's for research into therapeutics. Yeah, well. monitoring, therapeutic Fantastic. intervention. Yeah. 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 And just before we go into sort of where we where you see um AI, and we touched on it briefly before about the idea of it not becoming a panacea, right? Um mm. just quickly, briefly, just so we're we're covering all bases on the Atlas uh tool as to what yeah. what that is for, for everyone as well. Yeah, so the the Atlas tool is 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 arguably probably the most exciting tool that we have, um, because if if you're a radiologist or a radiographer, it, it really is like a, a kid in a candy shop. You know, we are using a one-stop scan, which can scan a patient, and it can get you over a hundred metrics, so a hundred different readouts on your lungs, your kidney, your liver, your spleen, your pancreas, your heart, your aorta, and all one person has to do is go into a scanner, it can be any scanner, you know, 1.5 Tesla or three Tesla, you know, it can be any scanner make, so it's agnostic. So when they're not developing this with a specific company right. and they get this scan and you can look at any type of organ in the abdominal and we can tell you what's happening. Now, the reason why this is important, and, and I think this is probably something that's near and dear to my heart, is that we're, we're, we're moving away from the single organ concept of disease now, right? It's no yeah. longer, you know, if you are ill, then only one organ is affected. We know that multiple aspects of your body are unwell, and, and this is the concept of multimorbidity. And this is especially true for diseases or disorders like diabetes, uh, melatitis 2, or diabetes 1. But especially, and we're using this now within emerging diseases and viruses like COVID, and we have a study called CoverScan going on at Spectrum right now, and you can actually look on uh, coverscan.com if you're interested to find out more. Uh, we're still recruiting, but we are looking at these organs in patients who have um, convalesced from the COVID-19 infection, and yeah. we're trying to understand exactly how the organs, how the multiple organs in these patients, what happens to them after infection right. and what it means in terms of ongoing or potentially long-term effects post-infection we don't know we know nothing right i mean COVID happened in march yeah <laughs> and what we've figured from our research in the past um, since we've started the study is we've seen from the hundreds of patients that we've already analyzed that of course that there is pulmonary um, disorder so there's there's lung issues but a third of our patients also have cardiac issues. We see a higher proportion of patients with liver and kidney injury. And so it paints a much more rich and, and kind of alarming picture that we have people who weren't even hospitalized and they have cardiac events and they have you know, reduced something called left ventricular ejection fraction. So there's less uh, oxygenated blood going into their body. You, you, you have people who weren't hospitalized and yet they're their, their kidneys are, are inflamed. And what this allows us to do, and, and goes well beyond the idea of science for science, but really inform healthcare officials and, and policymakers mm. that you know, this is what we're seeing, and it might change in the future. And again, this is, a, again, in only in the short term, so we can't really see the long term as yeah. well growing. Um, this is what we're seeing and we can now prep for this so yeah I, I don't even know what the number is now but there's you know millions of people across the world who've been affected with COVID-19 and mm. if we just assume only their lungs were were damaged then we're going to miss potential people yeah. who are yeah. unwell because their heart or their liver or the kidney or the spleen are also affected yeah. 
And by building these kind of multimodal tools, and it is something as simple as you just sit in one scan in, just like that, then you can revolutionize the way that we have a multimodal or multi-organ assessment of disease. Yeah. And looking to the future, is that where you see medical device that utilize AI need to go to have as much of an impact? Otherwise, we might be having, if you see, if you said earlier, AI being used in the wrong concepts. Do you really think that's where we should go? You know, it's so I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to be controversial by saying yes. Well, I don't know if it's controversial. I mean, some people will be like, no, reductionist. So science has this almost reductionist type approach that in order to, to kind of truly understand something, you go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And in neuroscience, it's, it's the, the like holds true, the very essence of, of neuroscience. And we understand that the deeper you go and the more intricate you understand the problem, then you, you better understand the disease as a whole. But we also understand now that organs interact with each other. Your body is not just a silo of one thing. And yeah. by integrating data across different access points, I think this is where AI and medicine needs to go. I think we need yeah. to stop thinking from a purely siloed position and start understanding the relationship between organs, between genomics, between uh, blood-based biomarkers, MR, invasive, non-invasive techniques, this is where we have to start going. And it's obviously easier said than done because the data is obviously disparate data, uh, data points. And how do you actually integrate things yeah. that are saying, you know, completely speaking different languages almost. <laughs> this is the challenge, you know, for, yeah. for people working in AI now that is taking this information mm. and making so that they actually are speaking the same language and that they do so intelligibly and actually offer insight because if I, as a, you know, a doctor will, will look at a patient and basically do this integration to understand a disease or disorder, to make a diagnosis, and they'll look at the bloods, they'll look at the scans, they'll look at the opinions from different, pathology, you know, from different doctors, and they'll integrate this information into a cohesive diagnosis. Yeah. But we can do that with hundreds of thousands of data points. We can stratify patients. We can bring together millions of different information that a human can't handle. And we can create yeah. better diagnostics, better monitoring tools, but it's still in its infancy. And this is where we need to go. And it all comes down to, you know, taking this information and working cross-partisan, you know, cross-party lines almost. And, and yeah. when I was in uni, I remember there was this big push that, you know, to work with different uh, colleagues across universities or, or to work with pay, uh, people in different areas of medicine. And it's this, you know, it's this relationship that you form outside of your, your area of expertise that really pushes the boundaries, really makes you think about things a bit differently. Yeah. So I, I think this is where we have to go. And I think for medicine, multimorbidity is going to be the word of the day. And it makes things more complicated. It makes things harder yeah. to deal with. I mean, it's already going to affect, definitely going to affect our, you know, the cash-trapped NHS, which, you know, is amazing and necessary. But how do you then, how, how do you then, you know, tell someone you need to take hundreds of thousands of data points and it's not going to necessarily be cheap, you know, <laughs> already in a company, <laughs> you know, in a position where they're struggling. I think this yeah. is where we need to go. But we yeah. also need to understand its implications politically and what we can do at large, right? So if we can take hundred thousand data points, that's wonderful. What is its practical use? Yeah. Can the NHS use it? 
Can the American health system integrate this? Can different payers allow this as part of a diagnostic tool? I mean, these are all the different questions that yeah. different companies will ask and shape. And, and I think as, as we grow, um, Perspective or, or any other kind of AI company, and as we mature, we'll understand that working as a lone wolf won't get you as far as mm. working alongside other companies. Yeah, I think that's a perfect ending for a lot of people to think about <laughs> and <laughs> a lot of a lot of questions could come from that and a lot of people will have a thing to think about i'm sure uh listening listening to that definitely the final piece there from yourself mark and just want to say thank you for sharing your your insight and your knowledge um it, it's been really intriguing um so that comes to the end of the second episode of, of life site life site ai the podcast series um, thank you for listening and you'll be able to pick up the next episode of the podcast on your favorite um, streaming service in a couple of weeks time and if you want to listen back to Olivier Jolie from Brainomics's first episode you can also uh, get that there but thank you very much for your time Mark I really appreciate that my pleasure thanks for having me cheers thanks so much that finishes this episode for LifeSite AI the podcast series I hope you got as much enjoyment out of that as I did. Join myself again in a couple of weeks where I'll be shining yet another light on a new area of AI within life sciences. In the meantime, follow Cypro on social media to hear about the latest updates on the series, but also on the roundtables and other work we do day to day. Please also like, share, tell a friend and comment on this podcast so that we can all promote the use of AI in life sciences together. Thanks for listening.